How's everyone doing? Good? We're going to have some fun tonight. Thanks for being here. Uh, truly, it's an honor every time that I'm able to speak with you guys. Um, I'm just thinking, even when I was worshiping, it's so humbling. It's a humbling place to be that we get to come here week in and week out. We get to come into the presence of God. We get to worship. It's a very humbling thing um, that in this day and age that we actually get together every Sunday and are able to read the scriptures, to submit our minds, our spirits, our hearts to them to learn, to change, be transformed by his voice. And really, that's what I want tonight. I want to see freedom come from the truth of the scriptures. I want change tonight for me. I want change for you. And in thinking about tonight with what I was going to share, um, I knew that I was on the calendar like a month ago, and so even a couple weeks ago, before I was even starting to like research, study, any of that, the Spirit kept buzzing in me this phrase, a life that gives Jesus his full reward. I just had that, that phrase buzzing in me of like, I want to live a life. I want to see you guys. I want our church to be known for people that live a life that gives Jesus his full reward. So honestly, in all the things that we're going to read about, talk about, that phrase, keep that in the forefront of your mind. That phrase is almost like the thesis of my talk, if you will. It's the why of tonight to push us. If you've heard me speak before, I love to... Uh, I, I do my best to draw a line in the sand, to wake us up again, to shake us up, to really see, reflect, and make any changes in our lives that we can confidently say, I am now and going to live a life that gives Jesus his full reward. Does that sound good? Can we go there tonight? How many of you love a good biography? Random question. Good. Who loves biographies out there? Okay, cool. I like them. I know in talking to people that love books and, and they are talking about their favorite books, it's pretty common that somebody will bring up loving a certain person's biography. Biographies are awesome. I love them because they're so personal. If you Google, I just did this like in studying this week, if you Google some of the top biographies, the most popular biographies are Malcolm X, Abraham Lincoln, Benjamin Franklin, Nelson Mandela, Winston Churchill, and Frank. The list goes on, you get Bob Dylan, a lot of people are reading about Michael Jordan, Steve Jobs. You like Steve Jobs? I, I love Steve Jobs. Have you seen the movies and stuff? We're awake. Okay. Steve Jobs is great. And then also, rightfully so, more than ever, one of the most biographies that are coming out are about Kobe Bryant. Rightfully so. Tragic event. But people are wanting to know about these people, biographies. I also think about our Saints Hill staff. Right now, we are reading a book. We have been reading a book. I don't know when we'll ever end this book. But we've been reading this book. No, it's a good, it's a good book. But we've been reading this book that has so many biographies in it. It's multiple accounts of people's lives. It's about old revivalists, people we really look up to and want to learn about, powerful big people that were pioneers. Each person on the list that I just said, so all those people about the biographies, they're big people, Right? Pioneers, they were and are some of our greats, people that blazed a trail of greatness in life for people to see and ultimately then follow in their footsteps. What is awesome, awesome and humbling, and I don't know if you've seen this as a common thread in biographies, is that when you read about stories about the greats, it's really humbling because a lot of times they'll say, so-and-so was just kind of a normal person. They grew up in a normal town nothing crazy special about this person. See, why do we love biographies? It's because I think that we could probably see ourselves in them, right? 
or at least you want to see yourself in the, in the biography. And honestly, I'd like to propose because I think they're God's stories. God loves to take ordinary things and make them extraordinary. So why are biographies written and read about the greats of our day? Well, two reasons come to mind. The first one is to give honor. So it's about a person, a leader, a great, a great in uh, a sphere of influence in society that took their life and made a huge impact. People love people who make big history, people who great exploits come from their lives. So a biography is an account, a testimony, if you will, of someone's life written by someone else to tell the story of someone's greatness, especially if the person has passed away, it's to give honor. Now, secondly, I believe biographies are written and read, now get this, of the concept of impartation. So I know it sounds like a super churchy word, but track with me for a second. People read about the greats, why? Because they themselves want to be great. And this is awesome. You read a biography because you want to learn. You want fresh inspiration. That's why maybe you watch like a documentary or something like that. You want change. You want to be equipped and see what it takes to truly be great. So I think about Steve Jobs, right? You see that he's kind of like a different guy. He's kind of set apart. He is a little quirky, like has his things. But he was also beyond creative, right? He was really blazed a trail for obviously new technology. People would say art, excellent. But people read his biographies, I think, because they really want to see how does Steve Jobs think, right? They want to see how did he do life? What was his morning routine? What was the first thing that he ate in the morning? Like people are weird. Why did he wear the same thing every day? That type of stuff. How did he solve problems? How did he create? How did he plan? We want to see how the great did life so that we can change and be like them. So we can learn about someone's life and therefore reflect on ours and see what changes we can make to then maybe one day be great. So we believe that something can be imparted to us by reading and studying people that went before us. See, in our meetings with our staff and talking about uh, the book on revivalists, we get inspired and see things in people's life, and we're always like, oh, my gosh, that was amazing. We need to do that. We need more of that in our church. I want that in my life. I've never seen that before. There's even been times that we've prayed even, like, prophetically, saying, God, just like you did that in them, would you do it in us? God, just like how you used to do, would you do it in our town? Do it again. God, we want what they had. We don't believe that what they were stepping into and what they've seen was ever supposed to end, but we want to pick up the greatness and run with it. Like on a recent vacation, Becky and I got away, and I started reading a biography on John G. Lake. How, have you, how many of you heard of John G. Lake? He's awesome. You should research him. I was reading every paragraph. He's an old revivalist. Every paragraph, I was just like awe and shocked, and I was like, wow, Lord, you're amazing. You're so good. You did this through him. Do this in me. It provoked me in reading his biography. It provoked in me like a heavenly jealousy of greatness where I was like, I don't want to be the same. I want to be set apart like him, just like John G. Lake. I'd see how John G. Lake prayed, stories of great faith, the way that he stepped out in healing. It made me want to change my life. Have you ever been there? Have you ever seen somebody? Thank you, Alex. I love you so much. Um, keep going. Um, have you ever been there? Have you ever seen a great and just been like, oh my gosh, 
that is greatness. What does he do? I want it. See, people, come on. See, people read biographies to reflect, to change, to grow into a person that can make history, to boldly believe that they see themselves in somebody else's story and say, I want to walk this out. Like, think about it. We're all gathered here today as brothers and sisters, as new creations filled with the good news of the gospel. But how did that even happen? By being told, hearing, reading the biography, if you will, of a man, our God, our Messiah, Jesus. And that story that we heard or read, a story that was written by others, fully used by the Spirit of God, that biography being something that is so life-changing and transformative that we as people said, we'll give our whole lives to this man in this story. To say that there's actually enough truth in your Bible to submit your whole lives to it and say, I'm in this forever. It came from a biography. So tonight, we are going to read a biography together. We're going to read the account of Stephen in Acts. How many of you heard of Stephen? More of you should know about Stephen. (laughs) So let's read, learn about one of the heroes in the Bible. Let's read it with honor and awe, with hearts and spirits ready to listen. See, I've noticed that with the heroes like that I was talking about, people get so infatuated with greats. Greats in society, and rightfully so, they're amazing. They've worked hard towards things with great determination. But honestly, let's look at the biblical leaders with even more admiration. Like we spend so much time learning about people in culture and society. How do they do life? How do they think? How do they problem solve? But honestly, (laughs) let's spend that admiration and drive for excellence on Jesus and the great leaders of our faith. Like, Steve Jobs, awesome, have an iPhone, great, great, look at this laptop, good job, great operating systems, but Stephen was the first martyr for Christ. (laughs) His persecution and determination and love for Christ and the gospel was the tipping point for the church to be widespread and developed. So, I'm going to get a little fiery tonight. So, with all due respect, your Steve Jobs, your Michael Jordans, your Brene Browns, hello, can take a lower rank to the apostles and the leaders of the Bible. I like them, but let's, uh, let's be pumped on these guys. <laughs> That's it. That's all I'm saying. Shots fired. Here we go. Okay, let's all turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're technically covering a really big passage of scripture. We're not going to read all of it. Um, But a quick recap before we get to Acts 6, and it's going to be important to have your Bible in front of you with Acts 6 because I'm going to be reading fast and there's a lot and so it just would be nice to be all together. Now Stephen, uh, quick recap before we read. Stephen was actually first, if you you remember, get on the podcast and go listen to Bria's message. Uh, It's a ways back, maybe like a few weeks or something, but go ahead and take it. That's where we're picking up here. So quick recap, Stephen was first introduced into the book of Acts by a list of names for a group that were chosen to help distribute food to widows that were being overlooked. Now, this is super important to note because Stephen was just a man, part of a community, part of the early church that loved Jesus. He bought into the mission of the early church and was chosen to just simply serve. Yes, he was serving in something that was really important to care for others, 
But hear my heart in this, not to downplay his service, but this huge hero of faith wasn't called dramatically into this huge calling or destiny. Like there's no story of like lightning coming from the sky. There's no angel of the Lord declaring over him what he's been waiting to hear for years and saying, you're going to be this huge, amazing martyr and evangelist for the kingdom. He was just part of a community of believers where he was chosen to serve. I bring this up because this should all show us that greatness is made for everyone. That's everyone includes you. So you should be a little bit more excited. That it wasn't some big calling of Stephen's that qualified him for a huge impact, but it was his service to a community and greater mission that qualified him for greatness. See, God is not looking for your ability, but he's looking for your availability. I'll say it again. He isn't looking for your ability. He's looking for your availability. The more you are surrendered and available, the farther God will take you. So let's look down. We're going to pick up in verse 8. Am I even there? Okay, hold on. Verse 8. So this portion says Stephen seized. I'm going to go ahead and read. Here we go. Let's see if I know how to read. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. It's amazing performed great wonders and signs among the people. So he started doing the stuff. Opposition arose when he was doing the stuff. However, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Here we go. Verse 10. But you could not stand up, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all were sitting in the Sanhedrin, looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So in the midst of all this opposition, God promises you a supernatural makeover. It's good news. He's on your side, and he's like about to change how you look. It's a big deal. Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Let's stop there just for a second. Very simple point. But what I love is Stephen answers their question. So my question for you is, do you have something to say to the world? Do you have answers for the gospel? Do you have answers to people's question? It's important we are not called to know all this stuff just for debate. We are not called to be earthly defensive, so be on the defense debaters. But we are called to be supernatural preachers of the good news of God. We have answers to the questions. Do you have an answer? If people are questioning you, if you're out 
talking to people about Jesus. A lot of people don't speak up because they think they don't have the answers. So let's be reflective tonight, never be introspective, but let's reflect as a family and say, do I have an answer for the kingdom? Do I have an answer? So we are at the spot in Acts where Stephen essentially, unfortunately we don't have time to actually cover this whole thing. I kind of wanted to, but it was like, it would be like a sleepover. Um, We'll cut that out of the tape thing. Okay, so we're at a spot in Acts where Stephen essentially is telling a whole overview of the story of God, of what we now know as the Old Testament. So another question is, do you have the story of God in your back pocket? Do you fully know the story of God? Can you testify to the world? Not to prove yourself, but to share the truth. So like I said, we don't have a a bunch of time to go through this, but honestly, for the next 50 verses, please take some time. It doesn't take long at all. Get alone and watch how tenaciously and just awesome and strong Stephen and this is actually the largest, Luke is the author of Acts. This is the largest speech that was ever recorded in Acts, which means this is important. So take some time, read it. We don't have all the times, but for the next 50 verses, what he's doing is he's going to the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, and actually saying, hey, you're questioning Jesus. You're saying no to him. Let me remind you of God's story. Let me remind you of everything that you guys actually know, but please know that this is actually prophetically showing that this is where we're supposed to be today. So go ahead and take a moment uh, on your own time and read this. Next 50 verses, he's just talking about, we call it the Old Testament, but the Law and the Prophets. And it's really awesome because he's going through saying, hey, actually this time why Jesus came was to actually fulfill the Law and the Prophets. So let's actually skip all the way down to verse 51. So I have to flip my page here. Verse 51. Are you guys alive? Verse 51 is awesome because Stephen is about to go off, about to go hard. This is the time that's exciting. Verse 51. Here we go. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. Real scary. Not. But Stephen, I'm going to gnash my teeth at you. Verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, so good, filled up again, look up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. So picture this. They're like attacking him, all angry, gnashing their teeth. He gets a vision. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know later to be Paul. So Stephen went off in the best sense. Don't you kind of like, I love reading this, don't you love kind of his righteous anger? (laughs) I think it's inspiring. Let me ask you another question. Do you have righteous heavenly anger towards something? Does something wake you up in the morning and say, hey, 
I have an answer, and I, I need to go and do this. Do you have righteous anger? Like in movies, don't you love when the good guys just kind of get so ticked off and they just go on like a rage fight? It's a fun thing to see. Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. He's saying, hey, you aren't set apart, not to be so graphic, but you are still so wrapped up in your flesh and not the spirit. He's saying, hey, Jesus is right in front of you. You're not living by the spirit. You're not set apart. You're too wrapped up in your own flesh. What I love in verse 55 that we read is that Stephen in the midst of this opposition, kept his eyes on heaven and got a vision. So get this, in the middle of any opposition that comes your way, get a prophetic vision for your time of need, and we can actually see what happens is it freaks out the enemy. It's like almost silly, like they're like, and like running, right? Weird. So in the midst of opposition, so that maybe when you're out in public praying for somebody, sharing your faith, that also could be when you wake up in the morning and the enemy just won't stop talking. He showed us in the middle of that, get a prophetic vision, and it freaks the demonic and enemies in your life out. Stephen gives us a model of what spiritual warfare looks like. You speak the truth and keep your eyes on Jesus. <laughs> See, Stephen, in the middle of being opposed, saw a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So when you are in opposition or the enemies coming after you, get a vision, look at Jesus, and feel. Hear this. Feel and know that the Lord's standing approval is over you when you fight for truth. It's a good word. Continuing on verse 59. Are you guys there? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. So we won't fully get into this, but it's just like a thought that I was thinking. is just Stephen, Paul's conversion stood on the shoulders of Stephen being a martyr. So when you step out and preach out truth and you're like, why am I doing this or what's my calling? When you do it, it's actually not about you. It's about people who are about to get saved in the kingdom. So that's a good word. Thank you. Okay. So amazing story. Amazing story about Stephen. There's a huge story of a man with great passion and boldness for the gospel. Couldn't you feel, and especially when you go back and read those 50 verses, couldn't you feel the love that Stephen had for Jesus and the love that he had for the mission that he was on? Could you feel the tenacity of Stephen? In the midst of opposition, he shared the longest speech, like how I said, recorded in Acts. He was fighting for truth. The way that I look at it is for Stephen, till the end of his life, just like the phrase I said at the beginning, till the end of his life, I feel like you could feel like I'm not going to stop until Jesus gets his full reward. That's the way that Stephen lived. Now to end, I want to share three different concepts. Three different concepts, three different questions with you. Now in such a big passage, you can close your Bibles if you want. 
Now, in such a big passage of Scripture, I'm sure there are hundreds of different vantage points that we could dive into and learn from. There's probably so many things that we can learn about Stephen's life. But in preparing for this, I just asked the Holy Spirit to move in my heart what he wanted me, and ask him to bring things to the surface that I could pull from and talk about for us today. So he gave me three concepts, three questions. For the first one, it's a phrase you may have heard us say a ton around here. Next slide, or first slide, or whatever. Next, whatever. We believe the Bible is not only true, but also livable. We believe the Bible is not only true, but also livable. In reading the life of Stephen, I was reminded of this phrase. Why? Because Stephen was a great example of what it looks like to know the truths of God's story and then see himself in that story. He knew the truth, and it led him to live out the gospel. He served the early church, which led him, what we read about, led him to performing signs and wonders, then ultimately preaching God's story and expanding the kingdom even to the point of death. He showed us what it's like to really live for Jesus. So for us today, when we hear that the Bible is not only true but also livable, First, I think about the Bible for me, for us, is not just words on a paper. This may be simple, but we're going to go there. Words on a paper, it's living. It's the living word. See, the Bible is not just a bunch of facts and principles that we adhere to so that we can live, quote, a good life. I'm going to say it again. The Bible is not just a bunch of facts and principles that we adhere to so that we can just live a good life. The Bible is not just, quote, truths that we apply to our lives. So please hear me on this. I believe that the Bible is hugely true. I truly believe the words alone in this book, the one that you have, are authoritative and shall rule and reign supreme in our lives. Also, though, I believe the word was created for us to live out. So we hear this. We hear the words, the scriptures, the principles, theology, our doctrine, they are not a means to an end. They are a means to a person. So the principles that we read about, our values, the stuff that we're learning, they're not just a means to an end, but they are a means to a person. I'd like to propose they're also a means to a lifestyle. Not a means to an intellectual end or a moral way to live. No, a means to Jesus and how he's called us to live. As a Jesus follower, if you're in this room and you consider yourself a Jesus follower, the Bible is a story that you are now a part of. Your life has now been transformed, and therefore there is a beautiful, holy demand on your life to live different now. Amen? See, the story of Acts was written by Luke to show us a lot of different reasons, but what came to mind is to show you the beginnings, the origin story of the family that you are in. I'd like to propose again that the biography of Stephen is there to also show you that this way of living in Stephen's life is available for you now. To show this, show us how believers are to live. See, the Bible is not only true, but also livable. So what else does that mean? To make it even more personal and practical, here we go. It means that our Christian activities are not just a means to an end. It's about transformational living. See, Sundays are great. Meeting here, Sundays are awesome. But what I'm getting at is we can never have our church attendance take the place of knowing him. 
you going to chapel, you coming here on Sundays, you doing the right things, those can never replace you knowing him. See, your principles that you adhere to or your Christian activity is not your Christianity. Christ's likeness is your Christianity. So your Christian activity is not your Christian Christianity. Christ's likeness is your Christianity. Your relationship with Jesus is what he paid for, to be intimate with you. See, to say the phrase again, are we living a life that gives Jesus everything that he paid for, to give him his full reward, is realizing what he paid for was Christ in you, the hope of glory. He didn't pay on the cross for you to attend a church. He paid so that he could live in you. It's a good word. See, I've found in my life and in church life that when we make church and the Bible all about principles and not a lifestyle, so not just all about principles and not a lifestyle, not about your life changing, over time, I found it can easily get to be only about your benefit and not your transformation. See, when it's about a set of truths that you just apply to your life, life tends to look more like right and wrong, and you're only doing as good as your circumstances, only doing as good as the amount of Christian activity you've done or the principles that you know that you can apply instead of truths that you become. See, maybe we can all relate to this, but when I think about um, the Bible being true but also livable, I, I do think about our 10 core values. See, our core values, when we wrote them down as leaders, when we got together as a community, we believed the Lord was speaking these 10 core values over us and over our community, and they were kingdom values that can all be traced to the scriptures. But every time that I read them, I feel a demand on my lifestyle. See, I could just read them as principles and apply them to my life and my benefit. So one example is like, this is a silly example, but I could say, hey, I'm feeling really lonely right now, which is, that's a real thing to feel. I feel very lonely. I've been busy, so I read that the church is a family that builds family, so I'm going to take someone out to coffee because we need to be family. So you take someone out to coffee, and that's good, but that's just a principle that benefits my current need. Making that value an actual lifestyle is, is, looks a little different, though, to me. It actually has a lot less to do with you, and it's more outward focus. It's finding the people around you that need to feel loved, feel connected to Jesus, feel like they're part of a community, so you invite them over for dinner. You actually do life with people. Just like our value mentions, we have one uh, value where the, the tail end of it says healing is for today. This one's pretty obvious. Just saying it to sound charismatic or edgy is just a principle. But how many of you know making healing is for today, a lifestyle, is a lot deeper and wider? Making it a lifestyle and a belief system that dictates how you live, for sure, I guarantee you, will make different how you walk into Fred Meyer. <laughs> if you believe healing is for today and that becomes a lifestyle, not just a principle, I guarantee you, you'll walk into Fred Meyer different. I guarantee you how you look at your barista at chapters, different. If healing for today is a demand on your lifestyle, it changes how you see brokenness in your town and how you see your neighbors. So let's not be Christians that live life for what God can do for us and just off principles. Instead, let's be people that are more like him 
and live the word. So reflecting on Stephen's story, maybe you reflecting on your life today, this week, this past year, can you say really that you believe that the Bible is not true, it's also livable? Can you actually say that I believe that? Remember, there's no, there's obviously no shame here. I'm not up here to just like give a spanking. That's not me. I'm talking to myself. We'll take spanking out too. Um, Okay. So there's no shame here. I'm talking to myself, but let's reflect and ask ourselves these questions, these sobering questions, because we want change. We want change. Let's ask ourselves these questions. Do I actually believe that the Bible's not just principles, but that I can live it out? Moving on to concept and question number two. Are you guys alive? Okay. Here it goes. Next slide. Are you living a life that is on a mission? Pretty simple stuff. Do you wake up every day on a God mission or just your mission? See, some of you would say yes. Like, I'm taking, hey, I'm taking this amount of credits. I'm also working this job. Once I wake up, I feel like I'm already on a mission. It's even a mission to try and get my hair done. Hello. (coughs) Or it takes an hour. It takes an hour-long mission just to put the kids in the car and go to school, right? And really, hear my heart, none of that is bad. We all have full lives, and all of those things have a needed and important place in our lives. But let's not forget at the core of it all and the core of why we do what we do is because we are on a God-heavenly mission. To say the phrase again, in everything we do, are we aware of the Spirit of God to say that whatever in this life I put my hands to, am I giving Jesus his full reward? What does giving Jesus his full reward look like when you're taking your kids to the sports games? Being supportive, talking to the parents, encouraging them, maybe give them a prophetic word, sharing your faith, what is, what, tell them what God is doing in your life. See, I guarantee you that you can put that lens of being on mission to give Jesus his full reward. So you can put that lens on of being on mission to give Jesus his full reward on anything you do in life. What keeps you focused on a God mission is constantly reminding yourself that you are part of a family of God, a story of God where you are not the main character. So again, in this big story of God, are you wrapped up in it? And do you have a testimony to tell people? Can you testify the story of God like Stephen? Think about the life of Stephen. He was a normal man, but filled with the Spirit of God. He was chosen, once again, we already talked about this, but he was chosen for food distribution that led to him being the first martyr of Christ. He said yes to a community of people, the early church, said yes to service for God. He said yes, get this part, he said yes to a greater mission that was making Jesus known and sharing the testimony and story of God. Stephen wasn't waiting around for a big, huge sign to reveal his big calling in life. He's not waiting around like, hey, I need that prophetic word. What do you guys see in me? All those is great. You guys know how much I love that. But he's not just waiting to live his life until someone calls out. He said yes to a people and yes to a mission. He said yes to a people and yes to a mission. So this reminds me of a time in my life recently. As some of you know, my wife and I, we, pre- we previously, I'm from here, but we lived in Redding, California. All honesty, looking back, I can say I was on a mission for myself. I was on a mission to lead worship, write songs. I was on a mission to make records, go on tours. Certain things were opening up where this mission that I was wanted to be a part of was actually maybe going to happen. 
And truly, I believe that not all of it is bad. It's not bad all to go after certain things in your life. There's certain things that you're going to build up. Businesses, always hear me. But I found that my vision for life was only as big as my mission that I created. My vision for life, my worldview was only as big as the mission that I created for myself. See, I was focused on my mission and how to get there, things that I could implement, certain people that I could meet, certain people I wanted to see um, me lead worship. I was more worried about what my voice would be in Redding, California, instead of what my voice was for the world. So some of you, maybe even young people, you, there's a thing in front of you and you're like pouring everything into it and it's like, I'd say dream bigger. What's your voice for the world? I was so wrapped up in my mission and what is my voice for this town, Redding, California? And God said, hey, you gotta dream bigger because if you don't get that thing, then you won't have a voice. What's your voice for the world? Then scene two, enter stage left, Alex and Emily Rutman. Just right when I was struggling with my mission, honestly, internally exhausted about my calling, they share with us about planting a church in Newburgh, Oregon with them. In that moment, I felt honestly such a release come to me and a peace rush in through talk after talk. In my heart, I decided truly, I'm done struggling after my calling and mission. I'm going to say yes to a people and a place. We said yes to the Retmans and we said yes to Newburgh. At that moment, when we talked about it in, in Reading, we didn't have any grand plan at the moment, but this is really important. But we did have a collective submission to a God mission. We didn't have a plan. We didn't even picture this. We didn't picture, like, are we going to have communion at the end? Like, we didn't think of any of that stuff. Who's going to lead? Who's going to do it? Is Jake even going to speak? I don't know. Maybe he shouldn't. But we didn't think about that stuff. We just said collect. there was a collective submission to a God mission. And because of that bigger surrender and bigger yes to God's mission, I can truly share with you tonight that where I'm at in life right now, I found my purpose and calling. Not by my plan, not by the Retman's plan, but by God's plan. Shout out to Drake. Hello. If you know, you know. <coughs> Just a little longer. Are you guys okay? See, Stephen was submitted to Christ's mission first for the church that launched him into the great exploits that we read about. This is really important. If you're taking notes, I, I like this one. I'll say it this way. Your submission to a greater mission is what commissions you, commissions you into your mission. Let me say it again. Your submission to a greater mission is what commissions you into your mission. See, in all honesty, in meeting with people that I do care about, I talk to them and, I, and they share their mission, they, feel, they tell me what they feel called to do. However, what is almost more important to me is this, have you first fully given your life to God's mission? Who are you saying yes to? Who are the people around you that you decide, that may be St. Sil Church, that may be another church. That, who, who are you saying yes to? What place are you saying yes to? And where are you going? See, it's a love for a people and a love for a mission. See, love in its nature is evangelistic. That's what we saw in Stephen's life, a love for a mission. See, we don't have to just, quote, do evangelism. We want to grow into it, but it's not something you just do. 
Love is evangelistic. When you don't think only for yourself, you will then think about him and others. It's an automatic. See, we are a part of an army of God. See, we're not only going after a nice, big, shiny ministry and life and benefits. All that is great. But Jesus said, he is the light of the world. You can read it. He said, I'm the light of the world. Then he turns to his disciples and says, you're the light of the world. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to put who I am in you. I'm going to then go to the right hand of the Father, and I'm going to be in you through the Spirit. And everywhere you go, love being evangelistic. Wherever you go, you're going to manifest me, be on mission wherever you go, and you will be the embodiment of Christ. Amen? So can you reflect on today and answer, is my life fully on a mission for Christ? Last thought, and it's very quick. Next slide. Fighting the good fight of faith, opposition, persecution. Just these thoughts, I don't know. That, if you know me, that's kind of how I think, so sorry. One last kind of sobering and reflective question for all of us. It's kind of intense. I'm sorry I'm a little intense. Actually, I'm not apologizing. Whatever. Here we go. Are you living a life that could be persecuted? My wife said that I, read, I always read my messages to her, and she helps me out so much. She also said, is the devil afraid of you? Are you living a life that could be persecuted? Is the devil afraid of you? I've talked about this in messages before, but it's not to just fight just to be angsty and just to be intense. That's honestly, I've seen in my life, personally, it's an insecure way to fight. But what I'm getting at is are your beliefs and the way that you're living, is your life questionable to, the others, to others around you in the best way? Remember, we're in this world. Sounds cheesy, but we're in this world, but not of it. So we must look different. We must live different. We must think different, which means, and I've seen over the years, what it means is some people's feathers are going to be ruffled because we shouldn't be living and doing and saying the things the world does. Christianity is never on the defense. It's on the offense. Some of you may not believe this, but Christianity is never on the defense. It's always on the offense because Jesus has already won the battle and he's victorious. Christianity is a, is a victorious wave that goes against the normal cultural current. I'll say it again. Christianity is a victorious wave that goes against the normal cultural current. So honestly, what does that tell me? If we are running into opposition at times, we must be doing something right. The enemy wants to stop us. So looking at Stephen's life, the power that came through his words... I, I really do believe the power that came through his words is because in the midst of opposition, he was declaring truth, talking about the fulfillment of Christ, talking about the God story, and just saying, hey, wake up. All of this was leading to what we are in today. So it's never just to obviously stand on the corner and just like religiously yell Old Testament-like things to try and scare people. It's never to devalue the Old Testament, but also... It's standing now and realizing that we are in the good news part of the story. Stephen shows us, I love this, Stephen, I say I love this because I'm shocked, whatever, whatever. Anyways, I'm just like, whoa, you thought of this, cool. <laughs> um, thank you, Jesus, helping me. Whatever. Stephen shows us that it's completely, it's completely and biblically legal to fight for truth to not be silent. 
and shows us how God will back us up when we step up to the plate and preach the gospel. So simply, all I want to say to end is when it comes to persecution, let's be real. I even thought of this. It's kind of funny. Like, I don't know if I'll get an email for this, but it's like, you know, like, you, you know the person, and maybe I've been the person where, like, say you, like, don't finish food, and then you throw it away, and they're like, there's people that don't have food. And you're like, okay, and that's true, but you're like, whoa, easy, like, sorry. <coughs> so I kind of thought of this because I'm not trying to just be extreme for an extreme point, but I do want to be real. Stephen was stoned to death for fighting for the truth. So honestly, in this, like, Western church, we have it pretty easy. So I like to propose in a small town like Newburgh, in your job, on your sports team, were you walking around us? You may know so many people here. Social media. I honestly think that we can. Um, I honestly think that we can afford some persecution. <laughs> like I honestly think that I, more in my life, can afford someone potentially just being rude to me in a small town, getting mad at me for speaking the truth, getting weird responses from people when I'm praying for people. If we're going to keep going after healing in the spirit, people aren't going to like it. And I honestly think in the Western church, we can afford a bad thing being said about us. I think we can humbly say that it does not compare to what Jesus went through and what Stephen went through. Let's all stand. Does anyone feel encouraged? I really hope so. <coughs> My, my heart for this whole message, honestly, God gave me this prophetic picture is most of the time we do communion. We just haven't done it for a while, like at the end of the gathering. And God really wanted me um, to do it. And he gave me, honestly, a really funny. If you're helping with the communion team, you can go ahead and grab the elements. If you're helping with the community, just grab the, if you're on the community team, I love you and grab the stuff. And then if you're in the band, you can go ahead and make your way up here. God uh, gave me a funny um, picture of how the type of posture and mindset that we, I think, are supposed to take communion tonight. In a talk like this and thinking about Stephen and just being like, how can I uh, press into what God's doing and how do I uh, live on a God mission, wake up honestly dead to myself and just saying, hey, I'm actually here because Jesus put himself in me and I'm the light of the world. Just thinking about that stuff. I saw this funny picture um, of each of these stations being like an army draft table where you're being drafted into the army, that you come forward and that we can actually, in a physical way, say that what we're about to take sets us apart. And there's some people here, I want to boldly say that you need to sign up to be in the army of God again. That when you come and take communion, that you're actually saying, hey, I'm coming up here to say, hey, I'm not living for myself. I'm living to see Newburgh changed. I'm living to see the world change. That I can actually, like, I, I talk with Alex a handful of times. If I, if I was in the Army, I haven't, and if you've been in, that's amazing. Um, thanks for your service. It's a big deal. But if me and him, like, shared bunks, and it was like we hear the bell ringing, and it's like time to go, like, put the, everything on and go, and I'm just, like, tired, and Alex is just, dude, like, we're in the Army. Like, what do you, you can't just, like, I'm like, I don't want to be a soldier anymore. And you're like, what, you are, what? I need you. Put your boots on. And so it's one of those things where obviously there's grace, we all have our stuff, but there's also, remember, we're in the army of God. St. Hill Church, I want to boldly say that we do not have the luxury to just be civilians. That's what this church is going to be about, at least, where we don't have the luxury to just be civilians. 
I have, though, in the past, just lived as a civilian. So when I take communion tonight, I'm re-signing up into the army of God. So I want to boldly say, when we sing this next song, um, we're going to make our way out of, out of uh, the pews, and there's three different stations here. Go ahead and almost take it just saying, Jesus, I'm signing up again. I'm going to start tomorrow. It's not just mind over matter. It's not just like your feelings don't matter, but there's also a truth that we live up to. So it's coming to the front and saying, hey, as funny as it sounds, this is an army draft table. You're now being drafted into the army of God to fight. The battle is already won, but there's also, how many of you know, there's, there's land that the enemy's taken, and it's our job to destroy the works of the enemy for a living. That's what we get to do. You're alive breathing because you are here to destroy the works of the enemy. Every time that you declare something and have a testimony, you remind the enemy of his future. When you say, I believe God's good and this is who I am, and he says, I'm a, I'm a soldier for Christ, I'm in the army of God, when you stand in that godly confidence and shake off earthly things, when you're not like the Sanhedrin, wrapped up in flesh, but you actually say, no, I'm, I have the spirit of God in me. When you do that and you say, I'm in the army of God, the enemy is reminded of his future. It's awesome. So I'm done. Thanks for listening. Um, uh, yeah, love you guys. <laughs>